Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with Glossy's international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. Zofia, thank you for joining us. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Lovely to be on again. How are things in London? Very sunny and cold. It's actually not raining for once. Oh, that's good. I think it's raining in New York today, um, on the day we're recording this anyway. But thank you for being here. We got a bunch of fun stuff to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about this Adidas hoax about a fake co-CEO and collections and stuff that came out. Um, we'll also talk about the luxury industry's prospects in China over the next year and some of the mixed signals coming out of the, the Chinese luxury market. And then finally, we're going to talk about why so many brands are getting into branded resale. This is a, a especially favorite topic of mine um, because I write about it all the time and I will be writing about it again for Glossy this week. So you will. this will be a little preview of the story I'm working on now. But let's start with this Adidas thing. So actually, Zofia, I had missed this until you brought it up to me. So I'm glad that you did because I think this is a great thing to talk about. But um, over the week, there were a series of press releases that went out allegedly from Adidas. It turned out that they were not from Adidas at all. Although, funnily enough, Googling it, there's plenty of articles written about these like fake announcements as if they were real. Um, some of which, when you click on the Google search results, uh, are like deleted now, um, which is pretty embarrassing. But anyway, the some of the stuff, to be fair, was not that fake sounding. I mean, there was something about a new collection made with a bunch of celebrities like Pharrell that was going to debut at the Berlin um, at Berlin Fashion Week. That's not that crazy. That's that's very believable that Adidas would do that. One thing I think that kind of uh, marked it out as a hoax, though, was the announcement that Adidas would have a new co-CEO who was the a real life Cambodian garment workers union leader was like going to be the new co-CEO of the company. It turned out the whole thing was a hoax by this activist group called the Yes Men that was meant to put pressure on Adidas uh, to basically pay their workers in Cambodia a, a better living wage and also to address some of the uh, wage theft that is alleged against Adidas over the last year. So I have thoughts about this and and how effective um, or not this was as a as a way to bring attention to a specific issue, because like I think it actually did that very well. Um, what are your thoughts, though, on on the whole sort of ordeal and Adidas's response to it and all that? And then we can talk about kind of the the issue alleged as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I thought it was a, actually quite clever. I mean, in terms of timing, this seems about right, like Fashion Week season's coming up, and this could just as well have been a press release to any number of publications from someone if they hadn't changed, you know, checked the official kind of Adidas email. So I think it makes sense for them to do it now. And obviously, I think the bigger issue here is that with um, garment workers, the issue has been largely unresolved um, in terms of brands paying back garment workers for lost wages, um, especially during the pandemic, but also right now in terms of paying them cost versus inflation. So making sure that garment workers are not losing money. Um, I think there's been quite a few different reports and studies done over the last couple of weeks saying that unfortunately um, brands are not paying them even inflation kind of ready wage, which means that they are losing money effectively on clothes they're making for brands. So I think that the the actual um, press releases were very kind of convincing. I didn't get a hand in seeing one of them myself, but I would have loved to, to see exactly how they worded everything. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's smart to kind of address one of the big dogs in such a PR friendly way. Yeah. <laughs> 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I felt the same way. I did not actually receive one of these press releases, but I wish I did because, yeah, you're right. I want I want to compare to the real Adidas press releases that I get. If a stunt like this, I mean, it's, it's meant to bring attention to a, an issue, and I think that this actually did a fantastic job of that because I try to, to follow this stuff pretty closely, and I did not know that Adidas, among several other big apparel companies, are accused by various Cambodian garment workers unions of you know, Adidas is alleged to have uh, withheld like $11 million of unpaid wages to their garment workers. And if the unions believe that that's like, you know, if that's what happened and Adidas is not, you know, doing anything to resolve that, then yeah, that that does sound like something that should be brought to, you know, wider attention. And Adidas, is, I think, was targeted specifically because they are uh, the one with the most unpaid wages in, you know, in this, um, uh, in the statement from, a, I think it's a, a group of various Cambodian union groups. Um, but Nike and Gap are also in their um, target too. So it's not just Adidas. I think just Adidas is, owes the most money. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, the entire fashion industry really relies on extremely, extremely low-wage garment-working jobs in the global south, basically. Um, it's the kind of one of the, the worst-kept secrets in fashion is that um, somebody is being underpaid for all these garments, and it's almost always the, the people in the factories um, in countries in, in South Asia or other parts of the world um, who are being paid very, very little to make these clothes. I mean, almost every big fashion brand does it. So in that sense, like I, it's something that I, I almost feel a little ashamed that I don't write about this every single day because it's such a, you know, huge topic. So in that sense, I think this was very effective. I'm going to be looking into this a lot more deeply than I was before. And, and I hope that other people do too. One more question for you, Sophia. As, as a journalist, do you feel kind of the same way in that sometimes it's easy to kind of forget big issues like these, especially when they kind of just go unaddressed by the brands and unresolved for a long time. It's sort of like, well, there's no real movement here. Adidas has continued to not respond. There's not really much happening that's new. And so it's easy for someone following the news to kind of just forget it because there's not anything new happening. But, you know, it's not something that should be forgotten. So what, what are your thoughts as a journalist on that? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, actually it kind of pertains similarly to all of the kind of sustainability news that I've been covering um, in over the last two years. I think that, you know, with sustainability, you get green hushing. I think with this, it's kind of almost like wage hushing, where it's essentially just brands are not paying attention to this thing and are trying to make sure that press doesn't pay attention to this either so that it doesn't become, you know, a big blown out scandal, which honestly, I think it should be. I, I don't think it's right for um, workers to be, essentially losing money while making codes. And I think that's the same with the wage theft during the pandemic. I think there's still a lot of issues that, you know, are largely unresolved from that period um, and are largely affecting the global south. I think that it makes more sense for, for brands to address this if they're hoping to be sustainable. That doesn't just mean, you know, making things out of um, the right materials or focusing on the supply chain. Like you have to make sure that you're paying your workers and that if you are, do you to pay something? Um, you definitely should be. Okay, so let's move on and talk a little bit about China. So I actually wrote a little bit about this last week, but um, 
Obviously, China has been a huge, huge market for luxury fashion and luxury, the, the luxury industry in general for the last couple of years, and it's continuing to grow. And I think long term, nothing's changing there. I, th- I still think China is going to be uh, a humongous market for luxury fashion and all the big brands are always going to be, you know, interested in that. But short term, I feel like there's been a lot of kind of mixed signals out of China recently. Some of the big luxury companies like LVMH have said that things are rebounding and that everything's going well and their sales are going up and all that. But I I, I think, you know, a couple of factors uh, there, the economic growth in China has slowed. It's still positive, but it's slowed um, to a degree that it really hasn't slowed in many years. Um, there is you know, they just lifted a bunch of COVID restrictions, which means that there's a lot of disruption with, you know, a lot of infections and stuff. So just in general, in the short term, I'm getting the sense that um, some luxury brands might rethink a little bit of their their short-term luxury strategy in China. Um, again, long-term, I still think it's going to keep going up and still be a, an area of focus. But for the next year or so, I imagine there might be uh, a rethinking of opening new stores, investing more stuff in China, just temporarily while things are kind of up in the air. I'm wondering what your observations are, Sophia. I've got some more thoughts I can share, but I want to give you a chance to say what you think too. Yeah, of course. Um, well, actually, what's interesting, and I think something that I've seen reported in earnings this week coming from Burberry and Richemont, I will be actually focusing on this in an article coming out tomorrow, um, is around the possibility of Japanese sales becoming a kind of good short-term market for the um, APAC region. And I think that, you know, currently, as you said, like Chinese economic growth has slowed. The infection rate, especially over December, affected luxury brands in a very big way. I do think that things are slowly coming back in January. And I'm expecting that um, over the course of Lunar New Year, which is happening at the end of January, brands will see a pickup in sales. But I do think that targeting other areas um, in the APEC region as you know, a sales driver might be an interesting strategy. Um, I do think that Japan is the biggest one out of those. Um, I think Burberry reported that they saw a 28% rise in sales um, in that region specifically, and it's been open since November. So I think the situation there is a slightly more stable. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right for sure. I mean, I was talking recently to the founder of Risk Check, which is a Hong Kong watch resale marketplace and, and a store in Hong Kong. And he was saying basically every Swiss watch brand um, wants to target Asia, and and that's why right. I mean, wrist check. They he was saying that they position themselves as sort of like a gateway between the European brands and the Asian customers. Obviously, they're based in Hong Kong and they have a lot of audience in China, but I think their their customer extends out to Japan and Korea and other parts of Asia too. So I think you're right. There's there's definitely a lot of interest. Um, not just in China, but in the whole region. I think there's a lot of room for growth there. I also noticed that, uh, you know, there's a lot of big, like I mentioned, big luxury companies like LVMH and Burberry are still doing pretty well in China, or at least have signaled optimism that China's still, you know, a good market for them. There's been some less optimistic um, results from non-luxury brands like Uniqlo and ASOS. Um, so I think like there's been a little bit, obviously luxury has been the big story around China for a couple of years, but I think there's been um, brands that are a little bit below the luxury price point that have still kind of capitalized on that 
huge economic growth in China, like Zara and, and Uniqlo and stuff, um, they might uh, pull back a little bit too while the luxury brands stay just because there's more appetite or more, I don't know, room for growth there for luxury. Also, it should be said that like even though China um, has been very lucrative for a lot of luxury brands and they've made a lot of money, they've also spent a lot of money there too, obviously. Establishing a business in China takes a lot of, there, there's a lot of work involved there. Um, so it's not, you know, the expenses I imagine are still high and the revenue is maybe a little bit lower. So even though, again, the growth is slowed, not terribly, but but the prices and, and the costs of doing business in China are still high. So I, I imagine that would have an effect as well. Um, let's talk about our final topic. So again, this is something I've written about a lot. Um, Zofia, you've, you've written about this and we've talked about it too, but um, just something that I've been, you know, monitoring. This week, J. Crew became one of the many, many brands to launch their own branded resale program on their site. It's called J. Crew Always. Um, I think they announced it on Tuesday, and it's going to go live, I think, this week or next. But it's powered by ThreadUp, as a lot of the various branded resale programs are. There's a couple other companies like Archive and Trove and Treat that all kind of do the same thing, where they do their own third-party um, resale kind of technology that they offer to brands. And there's so many fashion brands now that have a resale section on their site. The interesting thing to me, and I also have a story coming out about this um, this week or next, is the different ways that those brands position that arm of the business as some of them say it's more of a customer acquisition thing and they don't expect to make a ton of money off it. J. Crew, actually, interestingly, Liz Hirschfield, who's their head of sustainability, said that they want it to be a, a profitable big part, like money-making part of the business in the, like within a year or so. Um, might not start that way, but that's kind of their ambition for it. But some of the brands I've talked to don't really have that ambition. They they kind of just say it's more like an entry point for people who want to try out the brand or, or just a way to make a little bit of money back off of those products that are already out there. Um, or that it's just a way, I, I just talked to this brand, Kuyana, and they were saying it, their resale program is more of just a way to kind of um, cement their sustainability and circularity kind of credentials. So it's a little bit more of a marketing messaging kind of thing. What are your thoughts on on that, Sophia? the different ways that brands are using uh, a branded resale program? And do you, I don't know, have you seen one or another as more common or do you think one will be more more effective or less? I mean, I think it's still such an early proposition right now that, again, brands are always very hesitant to kind of put investment behind it. But it is interesting that jQuery is doing it in such a way and kind of using it as, you know, um, something that is going to be driving their revenues. Um, I did actually check out um, Kiana's like a bag brand um, and their resale section. It's actually quite interesting if they were to position it as a way of kind of reissuing older models of bags which is something that they're doing over there um i think some of the additions could be quite popular and they might get some um, attention by marketing it in such a way rather than just simply saying it as you know this is a section of our site where we do the resale component and that's kind of it um i think that it's still very much a underused marketing kind of channel opportunity um i think it's something that brands are only just beginning to touch on unless you're you know talking about patagonia um or one of the other kind of more sportswear companies where you know resale is 
something that they've been doing at least for the last year, if not longer, just because the products have a, a kind of high quality implicit within um, the products and therefore resale is kind of a natural evolution of that. Um, but I think as more brands get into it, it will just all depend on, you know, whether they're able to market that effectively. Because a lot of the times I think that customers don't even know that there is a resale proposition unless you're putting that marketing out there. Um, and it could prove to be something that's quite effective, you know, right now when there's inflation and recession, because most of these products come at a slightly lower price point than the regular stock. Yeah. And and some of the brands that I've talked to about this have said, you know, exactly what you said, which is the first couple months or even the first year that they've done it, they didn't really talk about it or market it much at all. It just kind of appears on the site. Maybe an, an announcement goes out initially that it's something they're doing. And then that's kind of it. They just leave it up there. They don't have too much too many expectations around it. They kind of just wait and see how the customer engages with it first. Um, if it seems like there's a ton of demand and they're making money off it, then then maybe they'll decide, okay, this is going to be a new revenue driving, you know, side of the business and we can market it like that. Or if it kind of is more just um, a nice extra thing to have, then they decide, okay, well, maybe we don't need to put too much into marketing this and we'll just leave it up there um, for the people who want to use it, who will use it. So there's there's a couple different ways that, um, that that's happening. One thing that I noticed from talking to several of the companies that do the behind the scenes stuff, so like I mentioned, Archive, Trove, Treat, ThreadUp, um, a lot of them kind of talk about it as this inevitable, I mean, obviously they would say this because this is their business, but I, I do think there is a sense, not just among them, but among brands where it's kind of like an inevitable thing that probably all or many brands are going to start doing. It, it's going to become sort of an expected thing to have some sort of even small secondhand option on your site and not just have to rely on a third party resale place like ThreadUp or The Real Real or something like that. Um, and I do think that's true just based on what I've observed the last two years, there have been so, so many brands adopting this and in so many different ways, like we said, for you know, with different strategies behind it, it does feel like it's becoming quite common and might just become you know, one of the table stakes kind of expected things. Um, do you think that's true? Yeah, definitely. I think that at the moment, maybe brands are not thinking as much about long-term projections of um, their own kind of branded resale products. But again, like the opportunity among rental resale um, and kind of new um, different innovative channels is definitely a focus. I think that this year especially, it's a great kind of year for, for growing those parts of the business. While it might not necessarily be something that maybe many brands would want to focus on because they'd want to keep the cost low. I think that, again, it's, it's a case of investment. Um, and I think if they invest in these channels early, then they could kind of see the potentials from it, be able to, you know, be the first ones to market it um, and potentially, you know, incorporate other parts um, of kind of product design in it as well. Because I think there's some pieces which are getting reworked in, I think it was Patagonia or somewhere else. So they're actually considering, you know, a different, kind of further parts of that resale model. It's not just about taking back, you know, existing clothing. It's about, you know, potentially redesigning it too. Yeah, I think the way resale affects design is is such an interesting question that uh, that's been kind of hovering around in fashion for a couple of years now, at least since I've been covering it. But yeah, I think you can see the brands that kind of just started out into this world kind of just tack it on a little bit. And like I said, they're still kind of waiting to see how people engage with it first. But the brands that have uh, 
that are pretty advanced into it and they've been doing resale for years and they're very into the whole idea of circularity, you can definitely see it affecting the design choices. Um, making things that are easier to, to recycle is one thing, um, but also things that just last longer or that develop you know, a patina or something over time, depending on the material used. Yeah, I think we're definitely gonna see a lot more of that. Um, Stay tuned to Glossy to see more about this, because like I said, I am writing about this at the moment, so there will be a story on this exact topic coming out soon. But until then, that's all the time we have this week. Zofia, thank you so much for being here. For those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That really helps us out a lot. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast to hear interviews with industry insiders um, hosted either by me or by our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. Every Wednesday and every Friday, I do the weekend review, sometimes with Jill, sometimes with Sophia, and occasionally with other members of the Glossy team. So yeah, thank you all for listening. Sophia, thank you for being here. <laughs>